Some years ago, there was a movie released called Heaven Can Wait. Some of you old-timers may remember uh, with Warren Beatty. The idea was that this man had died but wasn't ready to go to heaven because there was some earthly love that he was pursuing. Not only is this really bad theology, but they're putting the temporal kingdom of man above the eternal kingdom of God. The reason God doesn't catch us up to heaven the moment we believe isn't because we need to win a Super Bowl or win uh, that man or woman of our dreams. The, moment he doesn't, the reason he doesn't catch us up and the reason that heaven can wait for the believer is because God intends to use us here on earth to accomplish something of eternal significance. Don't you want your life to, to matter, to count? Not just for time, but for eternity? That's the picture that Jesus paints for his disciples in today's patches, passage, and he uses the image of salt and light to do it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus tells his disciples. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt has become a symbol of purity from ancient times. Not only because of its brilliant whiteness, void of spot or speckle, but because of its ability to thwart corruption. Before refrigeration, many of you know that uh, meat was packed in salt to keep it from spoiling. And here's a, a, a salt trivia question. What ancient Japanese sport still uses salt by its participants to rid the, the ring of evil spirits. Think big. That big. They do that. If you watch a sumo, before they go, boom, they throw that salt out there. American baseball players who end up on teams playing in Japan complain about being pelted with salt by the fans in their attempt to purge them of their foreign funk. So salt is recognized universally for its ability to retard corruption and to purify. Therefore, Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. What he means is that by our good character, we're able to have a purifying effect with those within our sphere of influence and, and, and within society. But there is another effect that salt has that we must consider, and that is salt adds flavor to our food. Voila. Boku flavor. Christians, therefore, ought to add flavor to the lives of those they mingle with, they, 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 that we marinate with. 
We should bring some flavor. We do that by demonstrating a real joy in living. A joy that comes from fellowship and friendship with the living God. Jesus said, I came that they, that is believers, may have life and have it abundantly. He's talking to, to living, breathing people. They already have physical life, but he says, I'm going to give you something more, something that you need, my life in you, his spirit of peace and joy and love and hope coursing through our being. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians walk around looking like they've been sucking lemons. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. And it makes me wonder how much time these clergymen were spending with the Lord. Because I read in the Bible that in his presence is fullness of joy. I love William Barclay, and I've quoted from him quite a bit in our study of Matthew, but he writes this. People need to discover the lost radiance of the Christian faith. In a worried world, anybody know what a worried world looks like? In a worried world, the Christian should be the only man or woman who remains serene. In a depressed world, the Christian should be the only person who remains full of joy, the joy of life. There should be a sheer sparkle about the Christian. But too often they dress like a mourner at a funeral and talk like a specter or a ghost at a feast. Wherever he or she is, if they are to be the salt of the earth, the Christian must be the diffuser of joy. How many have little diffuser bottles in their home? Are we the only ones? You know, you got a little bottle, it's got some fragrant elixir in there, and you've got these little sticks, and it's so it's just, it's just it's just this beautiful fragrance that it emits. That's what the Christian should be, a diffuser of joy. Sad truth is that when salt ceases to do what it's meant to do, when because of impurities it can no longer be used to retard decay or to flavor food, it's thrown out to be trampled underfoot. The sober reality is that believers who have lost their saltiness those who have lost or never had something like a Christ-like character and joy, they will be overwhelmed by ungodly influence, impurities, and their lives will have been ultimately unprofitable, like the salt that is thrown out to be trampled underfoot by men. The teacher said, boys, here is a watch. What is it for? The children answered, to tell the time. Well done, said he. Suppose my watch does not tell the time. What is it good for? Good for nothing, sir. Okay, 
<laughs> Some of you may be thinking, who talks like that anymore? I'm immediately stuck with the fact that this guy seems like he's using a pocket watch. But I'm also struck by the fact that he has their rapt attention. He has his classroom's rapt attention, and they all show him reverence, respect. Now, either that's talking about some bygone age or summit school that meets here on campus. When they first arrived, I was walking down the hall, and the door to the first grade class was open, and a teacher called me in and said, Class, I'd like to introduce you to Pastor Robert. Without any prompting, these little people all stood up and looked at me and said, Hello, Pastor Robert. I have hope for the free world because of that experience. Because what we see going down in schools today is nothing like that. The teachers struggle to maintain control in their classroom, and there's no show of respect. Then he took, the teacher took a pencil. What is this pencil for? It is to write with, sir. Suppose the pencil won't make a mark. What is it good for? Good for nothing, sir. Then the teacher asked, what is the chief end of man? And they replied, to glorify God. But suppose a man does not glorify God. What is he good for? Good for nothing, sir. We must not miss God's chief purpose for our lives. This is what I'm going to be telling the youth, these young, broken men and women at at Echo Glen. God has a purpose for their life, and you don't want to miss it. He came that you might have life, abundant life, fullness of joy, a relationship with the living God. Let's make our relationship with Jesus uh, premier. Let's take it seriously and have salt in ourselves. That's how Jesus puts it in Mark 9. Have salt in ourselves. Allow the Spirit of God, in other words, through the Word of God, to bring out the flavor of Christ in us. If salt describes who we are inwardly, light describes what we do outwardly. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven." The city on a hill or a lamp upon the lampstand, they're meant to be seen. You know, when people drive through the neighborhood here in Lakemont, um, they see our building. And it's a visible demonstration of a common faith. They know what we do here. We worship the living God here. 
And I believe the Holy Spirit can use it to cause these folks to deal with their own relationship with God. After 25 years um, in this pulpit uh, at Calvary Chapel Eastside, you all threw a party, took an offering, and sent Kim and I away. I wasn't offended. You blessed us with a, with a vacation. And a part of that time we spent in the valley near Assisi, Italy. Every morning, this is what we would see. We would look up and be reminded of the man from that city on a hill, Francis of Assisi, who was unashamed of Christ, trusting in him completely and telling everyone of God's mercy and grace. He traveled all over to the Middle East and up into France and Germany, but mainly there in Italy and in Assisi. We loved walking through its peaceful streets, visiting its temples, uh, excuse me, its uh, cathedrals. Uh, the point is, this city on a hill, it dominated the landscape. You could not see it. And it was a testimony to the life-changing power and purpose of God. Like this building here in Lake Pond and like the cathedrals of Assisi, we are meant to be seen. People should recognize that we've been with Jesus. Right? That's what... The, the Sanhedrin noticed about these fishermen, untrained disciples of Jesus Christ. They'd been with Jesus. They didn't have credentials like the religious leaders, but they'd been with Jesus and it marked them. We are to be living stones, part of the church of Christ because we act like Christ. People should recognize we've been with Christ. There's no such thing as an undercover disciple. For as someone has said, either the secrecy destroys the discipleship or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. We are to be a lamp upon a lampstand, Jesus said, that floods the room with light. Now, before the invention of matches, it took some effort to, to, to light a fire, right? Flint and, and, and kindling. and It wasn't easily done. Therefore, if a person was going to leave the house for a while, they would take that lamp and put it under a peck measure or, or a ceramic bowl, but not cover it completely, because if you do that, what will happen? No oxygen, the light goes out, so they prop it open just a little bit, and what happens in your wood-burning fireplace when you tamp it down so that it restricts the flow of oxygen? Your wood lasts a lot longer. It consumes less of the fuel. And that was the idea. We're going to run an errand. We put it under a peck measure. The light goes down. We don't consume as much of the precious olive oil. The point Jesus is making, however is that though putting a lamp under a peck measure conserves energy, 
It has nothing with that, to do with that lamp's intended purpose. You don't light the lamp to put it under the peck measure and conserve energy. It was lit in order to be placed upon a stand, a lampstand, and give light to others. God has lit us, the Bible says, with the fire of his spirit, that we might enjoy the warmth of his nearness, of his presence, and share it with others. And this fire was lit or ignited the moment we believed, the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ to save us from eternal separation in a place called hell and and to reserve us for eternal oneness with God in heaven. In that instant, John 1, 12 says, we became children of God. As many as received him, he granted them the authority and the power to become children of God. No other religion speaks of God in such intimate terms. Fifteen times in the Sermon on the Mount alone, this is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this in fact is the first time God is referred to as as Father in the Bible. But 15 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will refer to him as a father. Belki Sheik had never known God in such a way. He was born into Islam in Pakistan. Allah remained distant, impersonal, austere. Like so many false deities today. She was a courageous seeker of truth, however, and so one day she held the Quran in one hand and the Bible in the other hand and asked God, she prayed, said, God, show me your glory. That's a prayer that Moses prayed. Reveal yourself to me, she prayed, and because she knew the Quran thoroughly, she opened the Bible and started reading And she believed. A faith was kindled. And the Lord fills her with the glow of his presence. And then she she read about the Ethiopian eunuch that said, what's keeping me from being baptized? Well, she didn't have a church. There was no clergyman. So she filled up her bathtub and baptized herself. Wow! Wow! We have some women in here like that. They're just so thoroughly devoted and and open to God's guidance. And Of course, this conversion from Islam to Christianity uh, in Pakistan comes with a price. She was ostracized by her family and society for her testimony, even though her life was threatened, she refused to give up the nearness of God that she enjoyed as a child of God. And then she went on to write about her experiences in a book entitled I Dared to Call Him Father. You would never dare to refer to Allah like that. 
dared to call him Father, speaking of Almighty God. I encourage you to read this book. It will inspire your faith. <clears throat> Just as with Belki, God has shined the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ upon us. If you trust in him, so that we might reflect the light through word and deed to others the way the moon reflects the light of the sun. You know, the children of Israel escaped bondage in Egypt in the middle of the lunar cycle. I think it was the 15th of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar. That, that was the, the, the day of the full moon which gave them light to escape because the moon has quite a light, lot of illumination power attached to it, but it, it has no light of its own, right? It, it emits no light but what is reflected by the sun. William Barclay comments, our Christianity should be visible in the way we treat a shop assistant across the counter, in the way we order a meal in a restaurant, in the way we treat our employees or serve our employer, in the way we play a game or drive or park a car, in the daily language we use, in the daily literature we read. A Christian should be just as much a Christian in the factory the workshop, the shipyard, the mine, the schoolroom, the surgery, the kitchen, the golf course, the playing field, as he is in church. Jesus did not say, you are the light of the church. He said, you are the light of the world. And in a person's life in the world, their Christianity should be evident to all. Former FBI agent Kyle Serafin intercepted an internal document from the Richmond, Virginia field office that allegedly vows to spy on, quote, radical traditionalist Catholics and their ideology, unquote, because of their pushback against abortion and the LGBT agenda. I'm not going to waste any time for one moment worrying about the FBI. <laughs> but it does beg the question, if Christianity became a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Enough evidence to convict me? Would people at the restaurant say, call 911, we've got one right here! <laughs> or not? You know, here's a little thing I saw a pastor do once, and I've been doing it ever since. We were about to have a meal, and um, after we ordered, 
uh, and they, they brought the meal to us, he asked them, um, hey, we're about to give thanks for the food to God. Is there anything we could pray for you about? I love asking that question. It's just so winsome. It's just so easy. And sometimes they will really light up and say, yeah, I'm having health problems or struggles at home or all and say, okay, we're going to pray for you. Make sure you tip well. <laughs> Don't do this if you're going 10%. I'm talking over 20%. I want to be <laughs> a sweet fragrance to them. But I love doing that. And it just opens up all kinds of conversation. As lights, we are in the world to be seen. At times, the Lord may want to use us as guiding lights, like, like runway lights, helping people find their way safely home. The Lord may call us to take the lead as a guide to the blind, to those that are living in darkness, that don't know the truth about Christ. There are always weaker brothers and sisters who only need an example of a guiding light to just become fully ignited. Someone willing to courageously follow Jesus like Francis of Assisi inspires them to do likewise. At other times, the Lord may want you to be a warning light, like a lighthouse. The wise sea captain is grateful for such a light and steers his vessel away from dangerous waters that could destroy him. We're talking about a time before sonar and radar and all those kind of things. You depended upon that light if you were at sea. When we see someone heading for the jacked destruction, destructive outcroppings of sin, we need to shine a warning light. We need to speak the truth in love that they might avert such hurtfulness hardship, pain. During the Clinton administration, Anne Graham Lotz was invited to the White House for a breakfast with 200 other religious leaders from around the country. Even though she was feeling quite intimidated by the stateliness of the affair and by the wall of lights and cameras provided by the press, she prayed that the Lord would give her the words to share if the opportunity arose. Though she ended up sitting at the same table with the president and just a seat apart, she never seemed to quite have the nerve to address him. Then came the time for President Clinton to address the religious leaders. He told them that he woke up that morning with two pressing concerns upon his mind, welfare reform and immigration. He also informed them that the beginning of wisdom is tolerance. The I love, you are Bible literate people. You, you think, eh, <laughs> you're just disqualified. Afterwards, he took questions and comments from the crowd. She summed up the courage to raise her hand, and when he looked right at her, he then passed over her and called on someone else. 
At that point, she felt relieved, <laughs> not knowing what she would have said and told the Lord that she should get credit for trying. <laughs> when the time came for the last, one last comment, the president pointed right at her. She stood up and prayed, you know, one of those arrow prayers, desperate prayers that the Lord would give her the words to say. She began by thanking the president for inviting her and for being a good example by going to church and carrying a Bible. But then she gently pointed out at the beginning of wisdom was the fear of the Lord. And that... <clears throat> The greatest problem that America faced as a nation wasn't welfare reform or immigration, but sin. <clears throat> For more than four minutes, she became a radiant light of the love of God in Jesus Christ. One moment, a guiding light. The next, a warning light. She believed the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 19 that say, do not become anxious about what you will speak for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to say. The other believers in the room saw the light and gave glory to their father who was in heaven. Well, you might say, that's Anne Graham, lots you know, of course she's going to be salt and light. After all, she's got Billy Graham's blood in her. It's hers by right of inheritance. But who was Jesus talking to in these scriptures? You should watch the series, The Chosen. The Chosen refers to these guys he was talking to. Mostly uneducated Fishermen, unsophisticated nobodies. He's telling Peter and Andrew and James and John. A handful of rural laborers in the outback of Galilee, Galilee that they were the salt of the earth. These guys were the salt of the earth. And these guys were the light of the world. If it had come from the lips of anyone but Jesus, they would have laughed him to scorn. We're nobody. We will be forgotten right after our memorial service or within a generation or two. We're nothing special. Instead, Today, we have the apostles' teachings. The New Testament, it is the number one book by far in print today. They were the light of the world, and they are the light of the world. The way we're in Matthew, I love Matthew in The Chosen. He's a little bit OCDC, uh, not ACDC, Bob. Um, 
These guys were just ordinary people. They turned the world upside down. Should give each one of us hope. They were the light of the world, and so is everyone who holds to their teachings, no matter how humble you may seem in your own eyes. Jesus Christ has prepared a place for us. That was the promise in the upper room in John 14. That where he is, we may be also. That's our destiny. But in the meantime, the reason he has ordained that we should wait, that heaven should wait, that we should remain, is because he has prepared good works that we should shine through them here and now. So let's, let us trust the Lord to do a good work in us that we might be diffusers of joy and through us that others might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is a humbling revelation to us today. We get so caught up in the moment, in the here and now. So easily distracted. And we worry so much about so many lesser things. But you tell us to be anxious for nothing. You say that my father in heaven, your father, he knows that you need raiment. Look at the flowers. No, no king on earth has been wrapped in such glory as the flower. You need food, but look at the birds. They don't stress. They have all the food they can eat. Their heavenly father provides it from your heavenly father. He knows your need. So seek first the kingdom of heaven. This right standing that you have through Christ. Enjoy the warmth of his presence and and reflect that light to others. That's why you're here. If there's anyone here in this room or hearing my voice, it has not received this salvation, this relationship with Christ, forgiveness for sin, and adoption into his forever family, I would like to pray with you to that end just now. But I also want to pray with anyone that just feels like their light has been pretty dim. The salt has been kind of tasteless in the world today. And you really desire to go out to do a fresh work in you to fan that flame, that light into, into flames and, and, and bring a saltiness to your life. It would be like a guiding light and a warning light. I want to pray with you as well. You can just, in the quiet of your own heart, just pray with me. Say, God, thank you for showing your goodness to me 
having mercy on me, the way you did Bilky Sheik. I just surrender my life to you now. Come and cleanse me of my sin. Fill me with your strength. That I would say with David, your nearness is my good. That's, that's what makes me get up in the morning. Get dressed and greet the day and labor and toil in the day. Knowing that my being here is fraught with intent. You have good works that you've prepared for me. From before the foundation of the world even, that I would walk in them and reflect the light of your glory. The glory of the gospel is seen in the face of Christ. That's, that's a powerful light. But use me to reflect that light. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.